0: Well hello and welcome to the next episode of Eldritch Girl and I've got Ali Wilkes with me, author of All the White Spaces which is coming out soon. Ali it's lovely to have you, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi Mel, it's so lovely to be on the podcast. Um, A brief introduction to me, I am a former criminal barrister turned horror writer. I'm coming to you from Greenwich, London um, which is where I live I am an absolute nerd about polar and exploration horror. That's my passion. Um, I'm also, in terms of sidelines, I'm the books reviews editor for Horrified magazine, the British horror magazine. And I've also had a few short stories here and there in various magazines and anthologies.
0: That's fantastic. And um, you're going to read an extract for us that was exclusively published with Horrified to begin with. So in the transcript, that's going to be linked to the Horrified magazine extract instead of having it reproduced in the blog. Um, I'm really excited because I've started, I started the arc and I'm getting through it. It's a chunky boy. (laughs) I really like it.
1: like my very large son, I'm afraid. It's
0: It's really, really good. So I'm very, very glad that you're able to, uh, to read the extract for us. Um, Whenever you're ready, please do. If you want to
1: contextualize it and introduce it, that's, that's also fine. Sure, so the extract is from the novel's prologue. I know prologues come in and out of fashion, but I like them, so my novel does have a prologue. Um, The scene is Portsmouth in England in December 1918. The First World War has just finished and our protagonist, Jonathan Morgan, has just received the news that his two older brothers have died from their battlefield injuries and wanting a moment alone with his thoughts, he heads upstairs to the boys' bedroom. I took a long shivering breath, bracing myself against the windowsill, not the boys. I tried not to think about my brothers lying under that stinking, dirty foreign soil, the same soil that had stopped their hearts. They'd sent letters, at first I'd found them funny, about staying in dusty little French farmhouses, making friends with the locals about long marches through blasted fields and the terrible food in the trenches. They'd continued to joke affectionately, telling us it was all a game and one they intended to win. But when Harry's letters started arriving on my doorstep in their green envelopes, apologizing for the presumption, he needed to tell someone they had a very different tone, duty and sacrifice and horrors. I turned slowly. Dark wallpaper, grey and burgundy, a stark contrast to my own room, chintz and lace and all the things I hated, all the things that had been chosen for me. My brother's bedroom was as neat and businesslike as a hospital ward. Blankets tucked in at perfect right angles, unfilled water carafes on the nightstand, sparkling in the pale sunlight like cut ice. Combs and brilliantine lined up on the dressing table, programmes for social dances tucked into the corners of the mirror. The long north wall was covered entirely with maps, sea charts, newspaper cuttings. I wiped my mouth and stared across at the perfect jagged ball of Antarctica. Its unfinished edges and tints of pale blue dominated the room entirely. For as long as I could remember, the South Pole had been the centre of everything. I could almost see fingerprints on the glass, ghostly traces where fingers had slid their way down from the Weddell Sea. Of course, Chloe would have wiped it clean by now. That's where we'll land, Rufus had said, tapping a finger against his lips. Vastel Bay, base camp, then the sledging parties, off the maps and straight to the centre. You'd better hope there's nothing in the way, Harry said from behind him, Harry's allotted place, and Rufus raised an eyebrow. There won't be. Old Australis knows what he's doing. From the newspaper clippings, James Australis Randall stared down at me, handsome and commanding. He was broke, nearly bankrupt but insisted he had to try again and again for the South Pole, despite the accident that had swept him off the deck of his ship, crushed him in the freezing water against the hidden terrible faces of an iceberg, left him shivering and battling for his life in 30 degrees of frost. I wondered what it would be like to die from such intense cold. I imagine it would be rather like falling asleep, Francis had replied and squeezed my shoulder. Not so bad. Randall's accident had been in the Weddell Sea, that treacherous treacherous and deadly expanse of water churning with pack ice, which blocked the route from the islands of South Georgia down to the Antarctic continent. When he'd returned, he'd tried the ice from another angle, where Liam Clark had lost his fingers on the pitiless Great Ice Barrier, had refused point blank to speak to the papers about it, saying that a man was entitled to leave the past behind. I knew their stories so well and I could see traces of my brothers in the impatient choppy edges of each clipping. My mother's dressmaking scissors, borrowed and blunted and never returned. I could see them in each pin jammed into the wallpaper, my mother's violent disapproval and Rufus's smile behind her back. Maybe we'll take you with us, he'd say to me, half serious, half joking, eyes fixed keenly on mine to observe my reaction. Would you like that? Don't tease, Francis would whisper in reply. I'd loved him for it and longed to follow them, but knew I never would. My war hero brothers, off on their adventure to the great white continent, I could almost see them now, invincible, laughing, triumphant, leaving me behind again. A half sob, I buried my face in my hands, stretching my fingers wide, pressing into my flesh, trying to mold myself into someone different, someone who wasn't about to cry someone more like my brothers, more like the man I knew I should have been. I couldn't bear the thought of returning to my own room, cloying, stifling, as rigid as the tock, tock, tock of the metronome beating time during my endless piano lessons. The only thing in there which was mine, really mine, was shoved under the bed, hidden from Chloe and my mother if it contained a hand grenade. But it was just a Crawford's digestive biscuit tin, a nude, tautly muscled Grecian discus thrower was stamped on the front. The tin guarded my greatest treasures, the fat bundle of letters from Harry, serving as my lifeline to the front, and a grey woollen armband with a crudely stitched crown. Someone had dropped it on the street outside the recruiting station in the early days of the big Derby enlistment drive. The army posters had stared down at me as I'd picked it up, slipped it into my pocket. It was given in return for pledging to serve. I couldn't believe anyone would treat anything so precious so lightly. Sometimes I'd try that armband on, see how it looked on me. I'd prop the biscuit tin in front of my mirror and stare at it, then bury it back under my bed with all its contents, shoving it out of sight. I swallowed another sob. Not the boys. A rustling. The wind came sneaking in like a thief. Fluttering the curtains, toying with the newspaper clippings, the movement sent an unexpected shiver from the nape of my neck right down my spine. The fog made it dark for a December morning, so dark, and for a moment I could feel myself being watched by someone, something just out of reach. It was so quiet in the house, I could have heard a hairpin drop. I felt sure that if I removed my hands from my eyes, I would find someone else in the room, no, two someones standing tall and straight with their backs to me, hair neatly combed, uniforms pressed, handsome faces still turned up towards Antarctica. But Harry had been straightforward, hadn't spared me the details. While the shrapnel had mostly spared their faces, mostly, it was clear no one would be calling them handsome anymore. I thought about the ragged tearing of barbed wire, razor sharp on their tender skin, the mud, the mud, a chaos of shouts and screams and falling rain, the agonies of the men. And in the sudden darkness of the morning, I opened my eyes, looked around the room, breathed out. No one was there. I gulped. I would have done anything to see them again. And it yawned beneath me like a crevasse in that quiet room. It opened up and swallowed me whole. I knew where I'd find them. My shoulder shaking, I heaved the window wider. I hung half out of it, a strand of stray hair plastering itself to my face in the pale, wet air. The fog was so thick I could hardly see the street, let alone the harbour, but I could hear the tide in the distance the long, quiet pull of the sea, breathing itself back and forth against the shore, regular and composed as a sleeping giant. It seemed wrong, fatally wrong, for it to be so calm. There should have been a storm, wind lashing at my hair, waves rushing forwards like dark battalions. The room seemed to lurch around me like a gale in southern waters, and I clung on. My brothers had left me behind. I'd hug their memories to my chest. I'd fix them forever in that photograph in our hallway. Rufus, looking straight at the camera with his tiger smile. Francis, a little more reserved, standing to one side. The studio walls were creamy white and the frame gilded, but they didn't belong in it. No more than I belonged in this polite little floral world. They belonged outside with a wider prospect, the sea stretching off into the distance, the endless washy horizon. But now my brothers would never see Antarctica, never know a clear day on the South Atlantic or the jewelled ice of the flows. Their dreams had come to nothing, but I was the last Morgan sibling and I knew where I'd find them. I knew where I had to go. The sea should have risen up. There should have been a tempest, a typhoon, a tidal wave, crashing over the quay, breaking over me, making me anew, because I heard it then, the call of the south. I could hear my brothers. Maybe we'll take you with us.
0: I really love that opening. I love that prologue so much. I really love the imagery as well. That kind of really struck me when I read it first was the, the jeweled ice of the flows and the jagged blue ball of Antarctica. Like, that was just gorgeous in the like this really stunning visual. Um, and I think um, we'll get onto the kind of the emotional intensity of it as well. Um, but I was just thinking, what drew you to this particular era, and why the Antarctic rather than the Arctic in this case? So you mm. are interested in the Arctic as well, right?
1: But it's... yes, I am. <laughs> um, I'm into all things polar and historical exploration. But um, in this case, the era and the Antarctic went hand in hand. Um, I've always had a sort of lifelong fascination with the heroic age of Antarctica and the stories of you know Scott Shackleton and all those chaps. And it sort of it came from a very, very early childhood interest in the continent. You know, the stage at which you're sort of lying on your stomach in your bedroom, paging through atlases and what's that? What's there? And I found this place at the bottom of the globe that was called Wilkes Land. And and that that, that very much appealed to me with a child's zeal for seeing my own name in print. Um, And I was lucky enough to have a um, a father who encouraged my reading very, very early on. And I sort of grew up loving the classic adventure stories, you know, the sort of um, boy's own sort of hero stories of their era. Very much of their era, of course. And then... As I grew older and older, I started to appreciate, for example, the classic photography of the era, like Frank Hurley's photographs of the Endurance Expedition. I've gone to a number of really good exhibitions based on that. And also the photography and the iconography of those abandoned Antarctic huts, which are, of course, perfectly preserved and perfectly eerie. So when I was thinking of what to write, I knew that it had to be around the heroic age of Antarctica to really pique my interest but of course my novel is sort of almost post heroic age because the heroic age is normally taken really to have ended with either the first world war or with Shackleton's death in 1922 on the quest expedition um so what I wanted to present was a sort of imagined tail end to the heroic age, um, seen through the prism of the first world war. Um, and there was this wonderful sort of like little evocative nugget that sort of really sent me down this rabbit hole. And it is the introduction by Fergus Fleming to my very dogged copy of Shackleton's South. And it's just this one line, I think it says, the concept of heroism died in the trenches. And it's just the juxtaposition of this age of heroes, with, of course, the horrors of World War One and the sort of machinery of conflict that developed out of that. So um, I just wanted to smash the two of them together and create a sort of last hurrah for the heroic age or, 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 maybe, I don't know, a love letter or an elegy for it even.
0: I love that. I think that's, that's a very, I think it's very powerful. The, the melding of the horrors of the war is done in a very, um, not a subtle way, like it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. it's very explicit, but it's, um, we don't, we don't go to war. You don't start us in the trenches. You don't, you start us in a drawing room. Mm. And it's very much the, the the emotional effect and the impact of loss and that um, deep um, psychological scarring and those sorts of traumas and compounded bereavement and national grief as well. And that sort of, but very much focused on one particular character, one particular family. And then you get to meet um, Harry in person, um, who's the best friend of the brothers who comes back and, Etc. I don't want to spoil it too much because <laughs> it's not out yet. People got, but people will love him. I hope. Um, but I
1: hope so too. Yeah, my, my I
0: t- love Harry. T- tragic
1: son. Oh,
0: yeah. Yes, and he's so he's obviously the one that has been through the war, has lost all of his friends, has lost so much of himself as well. I think that's fair to say. To to like. You know, and he's um yeah, going on this expedition to Antarctica with um Jonathan. And it's I was interested in what drew you to use a sort of grief bereavement as the catalyst for, you know, the the propelling action in the story. Um and I wondered if you wanted to unpack that kind of without spoilers, but like the the impact of that sort of collective trauma of the war on the men in the expedition and how that helped you to develop their characters potentially, or how that helped you to develop um, the psychology of what's going on um, as we kind of get further into the horror of things in the the ice.
1: (laughs) Well, and um, sort of grief and bereavement as a catalyst really sort of came organically out of the fact that I wanted to do a post First World War Antarctic setting and exactly the same sort of people that would have been at the front would be the people on the expedition. So there would ov- obviously be an instant overlap. And I thought it was very interesting that everyone on that expedition would have been profoundly touched by the war in one way or another, whether they went or not, because you have a few people um, on the expedition, one who was a conscientious objector, one who was turned down for military service and volunteered elsewhere. Um, They've all been touched very profoundly by the war and it's sort of it's made its mark in their psyches. So it was very it was natural for me to use it as an inciting incident for Jonathan, the the thing that kicks it all off, because it's clear that when the story starts, Jonathan is sort of is he's very much stuck in a rut. He's very much trapped by his circumstance, partly um, partly because of the gender he was assigned at birth, because Jonathan is a trans man, he was assigned female at birth partly because of societal expectations related to that gender, partly because of expectations related to that class. He's uh, clearly from an upper-class background. His family are very obsessed with propriety and so on. So he, he starts the story very much almost a fly in amber, as it were, and something has to come through and crash him out of it. And incite him to make all the choices he does and some of them are you know quite wacky choices like let's run away to Antarctica yes that'll be brilliant spoiler alert it is not brilliant um so something something had to happen and it had to be from to my mind the death of his brothers no other thing would suit it couldn't be It couldn't be people who were further from him or or, or less bound up in his life because it needed to have that sort of sucker punch really at the early stage of the book. And also because Jonathan's entire deal at the start of the story is about him idolising his brothers and hero worshipping them. And he's built them up into this almost this construct in his mind of what masculinity and heroism might mean. And as the story unfolds, he sort of comes to unpick that and understand maybe their nuances in a bit more depth. And by doing so, understand what he thinks being a man is all about and the sort of man he wants to be. So he couldn't very well do that while they were still in the picture. So I'm afraid, Rufus and Francis, you're dead to begin with. Let's move on. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: Um, because you've got that kind of exploration of self and that reconstructive power, then, haven't you? Sort of that, de- the demolition of things that have gone before. And I think that line is really important, like at the the start. And I picked it up at the time I read it for the first time. I was like, ooh. And then you read it out loud and it, it kind of hit me again, which was um, a man is entitled to leave his past behind or something. Um, yes. And, and that that's very much like here's the main theme of
1: the <laughs> oh wow i'm you know i'm very glad you you picked up on that um i have <laughs> i have a bit of a foible when i approach either a prologue or a first chapter and i like to um i like to put as much of the book as i can in there by hook or by crook. And I hope it doesn't come across as overloaded as as a result, but I do try and sneak in the themes, sneak in some of the major incidents, sneak in all the characters you're going to need to know about really, uh, and um, just bury them early on. And that line from um, Liam Clark, who is uh, Randall, the the superhero's second in command and often overlooked, is really sort of key to the thesis of the book. A man is entitled, if he wishes, if he wishes, he doesn't have to, to leave the past behind. And Jonathan has to make that decision to build himself in his own image, not in the image of his brothers and not in the image of of the past
0: yes and that if he wishes is very much about your own agency in that as well and like being able to have that agency and um yeah i i really i picked that up i was like oh (laughs) excellent (laughs) um yeah and i'm i'm thinking about sort of the white space of the title and the white space of antarctica as that kind of metaphor that ability Mm that place of exploration that enables you to do that because you can be anybody on a completely blank sheet of continent where it is literally just you and the ice and there isn't anything else. So there's a lot of, uh, (laughs) what, or is there? Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) Particularly vicious penguins and... (laughs) (laughs) terrifying horrors. <laughs>
1: so. Yes, I mean, the, the all the white spaces thing was um, sort of a bit of serendipity on my part. So um, the book when I was originally working on it um, was called A Great White Darkness. Um, And I liked that as a title, it felt very dramatic, but it didn't feel quite right emotionally for the book, it didn't feel like it spoke to what the book might be about. And it's also very close to uh, the title of a fantastic YA novel um, called The White Darkness, um, which is set in Antarctica. So I didn't really want to use that. But my novel writing group helped me sort of pluck that title from one of Randall's very early rants to Jonathan. And it just sounded just so perfectly right for its time period, all the white spaces. And at the time I was was actually writing in diary format. So the idea was that Jonathan was sort sort of constructing his identity and story in the margins of this traditional heroic tale. And that corresponded to the white spaces of Antarctica. And even though I ditched the diary format, I, I hope it still works because the gulf between what's said officially, so to speak, about someone and who they really are is a major preoccupation for me in the novel.
0: Yes, I think I think it does work. I've <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed going on that journey, and um, I'm wondering. Uh, so, why did you choose? Um, Jonathan's character what kind of made him jump out at you this is my main character and how much research did you need to do and what kind of research did you do to try and bring him to life?
1: Well the fact that Jonathan um, was a trans character a trans man fell into place really early on for me um, because I wanted to tell a story about a sort of very masculine environment the trenches and Antarctica and give it a little bit of a a little bit of an elbowing, maybe a little bit of a critique. And so I knew I needed an outsider voice, but someone who yearned to be on the inside and felt it was really their rightful place. So that for me sort of excluded the traditional um, girl dressed up as a boy adventure narrative, which I really loved growing up, but I felt I wanted to do something a little bit different. And once I Had that in mind, I felt Jonathan's identity as a trans man brought out so much about his character and his struggles and also the way he relates to the other men on the expedition. So to me, it was really key that he was the character I chose for my window into this world because he could critique it and he could speak to it whilst not being, you know, boots on fully immersed into it just yet. And in terms of the research, I mean, it was quite difficult in a way because around that time, it's 1920s, um, trans wouldn't be a word in general currency, so to speak. And Jonathan certainly with his upbringing wouldn't really be able to describe himself as such. Um, But I started off before I wrote the book um, looking at other queer identities around that time period, including gay men, books about trans men or uh, those sorts of narratives around the turn of the century and how those uh, people articulated their feelings about their identities and who they were. And what I found actually was that they were quite matter of fact about who they were uh, and their desires and their identities and their wants. And people around them could also, even in the stranger setting, sometimes be quite accepting and quite matter of fact as well. They they wouldn't have the modern terminology to display um, perhaps a a very rounded understanding, but sometimes uh, people will surprise you in terms of what they will accept, tolerate uh, and generally just get on with. And so I wanted to bring that sort of down to earth matter of factness to Jonathan's story. And um, I worked at a very early stage um, before submitting to agents with three separate sensitivity readers, um, for trans male and trans masculine identities to try and get that sort of hopefully authentic and real seeming portrayal whilst very much bearing in mind that it's a book uh, about a trans man rather than a book about being trans per se. That's, that's not really Jonathan's journey.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's, um, that's like an important distinction. But I think it Yeah, I, I enjoy Jonathan's voice a lot. And I can see how you've, um, I it does, I I now that you've said you started off in sort of diary epistolary sort of format, I can kind of see how it would have developed from that sort. Of, I can see how it lends itself to, to that. But I really love the narrative voice and the flow of the narrative. Um, and I think it really works. Yeah. And I can't wait for other people to read it so I can say more <laughs> about
1: well, it. Thank you very much. I think um, starting it as a diary did really help me because I wrote a lot of it as a diary, like the entire first draft diary only you know 80,000 words and um, it really helped me sort of inhabit Jonathan's voice and make all those sort of quite niggling decisions about whether he would use this word or the other word whether he has a sort of flight of fancy language or whether he's resolutely down to earth and god love him I love Jonathan but it's very funny when he walks out of say a terrifying location he comes out into the polar night and it's awful you as a writer want to really sort of paint the picture but inside I can hear Jonathan going it was dark and cold <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> thinking about that it's like that almost that anticlimactic like <laughs> Splat. <laughs> yes. <Yeah.
1: laughs> exactly. You, you've got to keep it Love true it. to what, what he would say and the frames of reference he would have, I think. And that that is much easier to do, I think, if you start off writing it as a diary and then transpose it as I have into a sort of first person, more traditional narrative.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about um, other kinds of research that you obviously have done that you've been immersed in since you were a child um, because the Antarctic as a, yeah, Antarctica behind you <laughs> um, is, I mean, some seriously weird stuff has happened in the Antarctic anyway. And there's lots of really interesting uh, stories as of sort a of, uh, biological things and, uh, just um very bizarre kind of narratives and lights and uh, illusions and perceptions and that kind of stuff and I was wondering if um you know how much of that did you um develop and put into the story and what did you leave out that you kind of wanted to put in which I imagine is like everything
1: (laughs) oh man yeah I mean in terms of what I put in um All the white spaces at its core, I think, is largely inspired by the narratives of Shackleton, um, in particular his Endurance expedition. It's around the same time period Endurance was at the start of the First World War. Um, It involves a disaster in the Weddell Sea, and there's a young stowaway in search of adventure as there was on Shackleton's ship, um, Perse Blackborough, the um, Welsh galley assistant. so I really sort of took that as a starting point with the research and tried to be very focused on the heroic age and that time in Antarctica and that region of Antarctica and not sort of go off on a flight of fancy and or down a wiki hole to do with anything else. I took Shackleton as a starting point, obviously, but I'm writing a world in which he didn't exist um, because... I think that if you're writing a historical novel um, where there's one preeminent person around a certain time in a certain place, you're going to have to grapple with either you put them in the novel and deal with that as you will. Or if you if you want to have a second explorer who's a little bit like that, they might have to meet or have some sort of history. And I didn't want that. So I tossed all of that out to create um Australis Randall and to give myself a little bit more leeway and then really sort of focused in on fleshing out everything that he might have gone through in his life but there's a lot of stuff about Antarctica that I very much enjoyed and had to largely leave out Um, really interesting accounts of killer whales hunting the men from the expeditions on the ice flows, um, ganging up on the men, trying to kill the men, their dogs, their ponies, and so on. The descriptions given are just terrifying, absolutely cherry grad on Scott's expedition talks about their yellow pig-like eyes. And it's, it's all very, very frightening. And I came to the conclusion I couldn't use any of that, but you do see references to killer whales here and there in the novel because I just couldn't stop myself. Um, And then my other great exploration loves are scurvy, um, which I regretfully concluded I couldn't shoehorn into the novel. It's already a, a very chonky boy indeed. And survival cannibalism, which obviously looms very large over Arctic exploration, not so much Antarctic. So again, I had to put that to one side and be very deliberate that we weren't going to have, as it were, a dwindling stores plot line or a scurvy sores plotline.
0: <laughs> I uh, why why is that that there's more survival cannibalism in Arctic rather than Antarctic? What's what's that about?
1: I don't know. It might be due to um, time periods and equipment. Mm. And in Antarctic exploration, it tends to be um, at its pioneer age, slightly later. because when you think of survival cannibalism in the Arctic, you're really sort of hitting a peak around the sort of 1850s, 1880s with the Franklin expedition with Greeley and stuff like that. So I don't know whether it's something to do with the time period or whether there's just something in the water up there. It's It, it, it seems to be a, a very bad place for survival cannibalism, um, but we don't really have that sort of the same degree of stories in the Antarctic. I'm not even going to comment on the Mawson controversy because I'm not qualified, but it's an interesting one.
0: Okay, yeah, <laughs> I think people can Google that one <laughs> and come to your own conclusions. I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. in terms of what else, I I would have loved to have done a nod to in the book. Um, there's a lot of very cosmic shit happening in Antarctica you've got things like the blood falls which is just so heavy metal which is like a waterfall that runs red like blood um you've got things like the Wilkesland gravity anomaly which is um a place where satellites get pulled towards the earth because there's a massive deposit of something like meteorite iron they think under the snow and ice um so you've got all this sort of strange ufo conspiracy theory stuff going on with antarctica and that's that's all fascinating and i would have liked to have included more nods to it in the book but again, I was trying very deliberately to evoke the feel of a certain place and time—that certain heroic era I didn't think I could fit it all in. So, um, look out for a nineteen forties, fifties, cosmic Nazi Antarctica book. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> this, got to got, do that one now. Yeah,
1: I am actually looking
0: forward to that now. <laughs> like tiny bit of survival cannibalism. Like, Tiny, tiny bit. A morsel. A I Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm really excited. Um, and when is it coming out? Um, did you like to do the big? It's so, very soon this
1: month. Yes, um, that's right. All the white spaces is out in the UK on the 25th, so um, a week today as we're recording this. And in the US, I'm afraid the US readers have to wait a little bit longer. It's the 29th of March so that's when it'll be on sale
0: so 25th of january uk and then march for the us terribly sad i think this episode will probably go out in february so Mm -hmm. right in the middle of the two so actually by the time this podcast airs (laughs) but i still won't be able to spoil it for us readers because (laughs) they have to wait a whole other month (laughs) yes Is there anything else that you've got coming up or any author events that you'd like to mention or um, anything with Horrified Magazine that you want to bring up while you're here?
1: Um, In terms of Horrified Magazine, um, we are still going strong. That was launched, as you probably remember, during um, some pretty wild times for us with uh, COVID and various other things. But still going strong. I'm still book reviews editor over there. We um, specialize in British horror because we really want to champion British horror, particularly indie horror, and sort of shine a spotlight on it. Because one thing about the horror scene is it can come across as really quite US centric. So trying um, trying to diversify that as much as we're able to. Um, I'm also in the starting lineup of Cloyster Fox, which is a brand new British word and speculative fiction zine. The first um, edition is going to be out in April. It's going to be biannually after that. Um, At time of recording, our Indiegogo campaign is still going to help us get off the ground. But it's going to have some seriously weird fiction from speculative and slipstream writers. I'm going to be in the first issue, so I'm working on that at the moment. And finally, um, as you can probably imagine, there is a book two in the works. Um, It's no surprise. It's more historical horror set in cold places, this time the Arctic. And this one really takes that scurvy and survival cannibalism and just runs with it it's a book all about scurvy and survival cannibalism yay <laughs> I know right <laughs> very
0: excited yeah
1: the second I realized I couldn't fit it in all white spaces I was like hang on buckle up we're going to get go.
0: <laughs> good <laughs> good choices Except by I'm assuming most of the characters in the book.
1: (laughs) Oh, terrible choices! Terrible choices! None of most of my characters could not make a good choice if it hit them in the face. It's it's, excellent. It's it's a problem though. (laughs)
0: Excellent. (laughs) Well, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for. But I, yeah, really enjoyed listening to um, so much Antarctic goodness.
1: Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure.